This podcast may contain disturbing content for some listeners. It's intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. This is True Crime XS. We sort of leave off the I-70 Strangler uh, in our third episode on this series with, like, a really odd development. And, you know, if, if you've touched on the I-70 Strangler in, in any kind of media, this guy comes up. He is uh, he's fascinating to me for a number of reasons. He even now is mentioned on the wiki page for the I-70 Strangler. And, and he turns out to be like like quite the character. This is not going to be a deep dive into him. We're gonna we're gonna cover him in one episode because we're kind of headed to a, another uh, person uh, along this way. Uh, we're we're kind of headed another direction along this way. We just were never able to like sit. We were never able to sit down and go, okay, why do they call this guy the I seventy Strangler? Like, is it one person? Why does it get closed? This is the closest they get, in my opinion, to like having a serial killer who's affiliated with the I-70 Strangler. Um, this is a guy that's born in Crawfordsville, Indiana, on December 21st of 1952. He's the youngest of four kids. Uh, his dad's an alcoholic, and he was alleged to have physically and emotionally abused his wife and his children. They finally get divorced. The parents get divorced when... Uh, this particular suspect is three years old. Uh, he and his sister end up in, the, the, so the two youngest children, it's this guy and then a sister that's slightly older than him. They end up in foster care. They end up with left with babysitters. And finally, at different points in time, they end up with their older siblings watching them. Um, but they're not that far apart in age. So this is like 11-year-old children watching three- and five-year-old children. So mom was struggling to meet the financial needs of the family and to provide adequate care, which I think you would see that in a lot of situations where people grow up sort of strange existence. But even when the kids were in foster care, the mom, who was known as Shirley, she would visit them. And uh, this guy claims that the, that kept the family close. And we have quite a bit of documentation on, on his on his life overall. Uh, 1957, mom gets remarried. That marriage only lasts a year. 1960, she gets married again for a third time. That marriage lasts four years. 1972, she gets married for a fourth time. So this kid's just turning 20 when that happens. And according to everything I've read, bio dad, like dad number one, and then the, the stepdad one and stepdad two, uh, they drink a lot. I guess you can only have one biological dad. So, Bio dad, is, it is. Uh, the 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 kids were subjected to frequent abuse by the biological father, by the stepfathers. Different things occurred where heads were held under scalding water as a form of discipline. This kid grows up and goes to St. Joseph's, Joseph's School in, in Lebanon, Indiana. And um, he was a big kid. He was an athlete. But he would still be targeted regularly by bullies because of the way he dressed and the fact that his family was poor. 
uh, and his parents were divorced, which used to be a huge deal. His his sister, his slightly older sister, Teresa, would confront the bullies. His teachers looked at him and they thought he was quiet but likable. He didn't have many friends. He's kind of a loner. He was stubborn. He was erratic. And he got placed in a home for unruly boys in 1963 uh, by his mother. And he found that experience to be quite devastating because he's 11 years old and she's shoving him off. She doesn't know what to do with him. But within weeks, he had conned his mom into letting him come home. And he underwent a battery of tests in the school system and, and with social services. And they found him to be of you know relatively average intelligence, but he, was, he had abandonment issues. And he had severe insecurities surrounding what had been his home life so far. Uh, social services ended up recommending that he go into a Catholic boys' home in Fort Wayne. He went there for about six months, but he ends up back with his mom pretty quickly after that. So the guy that we're talking about here is a, a, is a serial killer named Larry William Eiler. And he has a pretty interesting story, but but really what makes him so fascinating to me is that he is almost completely average in every way. He discovers when he's going through puberty that he's gay and he's very open about being gay to his family but he struggled with deep-seated feelings of hatred towards himself because he was gay. Um, and he thought that like there was something wrong with him throughout high school. He would date girls, but according to everything that's available on him, he wasn't intimate with them. He was not sleeping with any girls. He had been somewhat religious since his childhood, but he did confide to a couple of close friends um, how hard it was for him to grow up gay and, the 70s and Indiana. He fails to graduate from high school because he didn't really care much about it, but he does end up getting his GED. And he goes through community college and he ends up obtaining employment as a private security guard in the Marion County General Hospital. He works there for six months, but then he gets, he, he according to sources, Online, he loses the position where he gets fired. I don't think it was anything major. I think they basically just said, you know, it's not working out. Uh, and he starts to work at a shoe store. So while he's working at the shoe store, Larry begins to familiarize himself with gay bars and how having casual liaisons with men would work. And several of individuals that were interviewed later on in Larry's life would say that he would avert his eyes from whoever he was having sex with, but he would shout profanities that it's like seemed to indicate he was imagining that his partner was a woman. Like he was trying to make himself normal. Had you ever read about Larry Eiler before we um, started doing this? Um, I had, uh, it's actually, I have sort of an interesting little, reason why why well because Eiler is the he he sort of gets indirectly brought to light uh much much later and in like a very mainstream avenue when his attorney at the time of his death uh is 
featured in Making of a Murderer. Yeah, we're going to get to that. That's a huge deal. Um, And so because his name came up there, and if you recall, uh, what I remember is basically uh, Kathleen Zellner, like, had a press, I think it was a press conference, and she basically, she relayed information from her client after his death, right? Yeah. And that's who her client was, was this guy, right? Yeah, yep. And so, yes, I have heard of him when, whenever I saw that happen or whatever, I looked into the guy, right? Which it's this guy. And so, yes, I am aware of him and I have read some about him. I haven't gotten super deep into his uh, cases and stuff. At the time that I would have come across this, I wasn't, you know, researching for shows or anything like that. Yeah. I, I never was able to make him work. This is going to be the closest we get to him. He's, he's pretty open in terms of his life. And uh, if there is a, Well, we'll talk about it as we go today, but if there's something else to discover about him, I don't think I'm going to be the one to do it. By the, by the time the mid seventies are rolling around, basically when Larry is in his early twenties, he gets to be really well known within the gay community of Indianapolis, Indiana. And he had a couple of different things going on that sort of matched some of the profiles we talked about related to the I-70 Strangler. He's particularly well known for people who are into uh, a particular paraphilia known as the leather subculture. And that are that that's a, a group of people that are sort of identified by preferring to have leather garments involved in their sexual activities or their, and even like the lead up to their sexual activities. There are acquaintances, uh, there are acquaintances who have spoken out over the years and they're quoted in books and they're quoted in different interviews within the, the community from the seventies, Indianapolis, uh, the gay community from seventies in Indianapolis. They describe him as a good looking laid back guy who was an avid bodybuilder. He was close to his family, particularly his mother and his sister, Although people who had engaged in sexual activity with Larry said that he had a bit of a sadistic streak and an unpredictably violent temper, which only came up while they were actually having sex. That's sort of an unusual feature uh, that like when you don't, you know, don't really have that in your regular life, but it is in your sex life. Um, Actually, I think that that's something that we won't ever know unless the person being talked about, like, kills somebody. Yeah, you're probably right, actually. it's He's sort of described as being a little Jekyll and Hyde, but it, it, the Jekyll and Hyde nature is limited to when he's having sex. And that includes that, like, he he had beat some people. And then later on, it's described as he had inflicted... Uh, sort of light or hesitant knife wounds on unwilling partners, particularly to their uh, their chest and their, their abdomen. Now, Larry worked as a house painter for like a long time. And if you go reading the different books about him, that's one of the things they focus in on because it's kind of this time period that 
he becomes most known in this community. And he never serves in the military, not, not in the army or anything, but he would frequently be found wearing Marine Corps t-shirts. I don't really know what that's about. I always like wondered if that's like sort of like a, a fetish or a cop fetish or just a presentation. He wants people to think that he's like that kind of tough guy. Um, he resided in a condo in Terre Haute with a 38-year-old library science professor named Robert David Little, whom he had first met at Indiana State University when he was just 22 years old. The relationship between the two men was said to be a platonic one. And the different articles about him, if you read about uh, Larry after he's sort of discovered in the middle of all this, Little seemed to be a father figure to him. And both Larry and Robert Little regularly were socializing within the, the Indianapolis gay community. Little was a socially awkward, sort of less attractive individual by all accounts. Uh, he struggled to form friendships or find sexual partners, which resulted in Larry bringing young men to Robert to their their home to the condo, uh, and it, sort of expecting those people to engage in sex with both of them. Now, his first attempted murder, by all accounts, it happens on August 3rd of 1978. Larry picks up a 19-year-old hitchhiker, a guy named Craig Long, in Terre Haute, Indiana. And shortly after Long gets into the truck, Larry starts talking to him about sex. And Craig wants to get out of the vehicle. So you've got this 26-year-old guy and a 19-year-old guy driving along. Larry's response to this when he rejects him and wants to get out of the vehicle is to press a knife against his chest. And Craig Long tells him, I don't have any money. You can't rob me. So Larry drives towards a rural location and tells him, I don't want your money. That's not what I'm after. He orders Craig to undress and he handcuffs him. He binds his ankles and he orders him to get into the back of the pickup. When Craig tries to get away from the pickup as Larry was taking his pants off, Larry chases him, and Craig Long is, is shouting after him uh, epithets, including you queer, indicating that this was not his thing. In uh, response, Larry stabs him once in the chest, and he penetrates a lung. Uh, Craig lays down on the ground, and he pretends to be dead. Larry leaves, or flees, whatever how you want to look at it, and later, Craig is able to get up and go to a nearby house. And the people who lived at the house dial for paramedics and police. Shortly thereafter, Larry drove to the house as Craig is getting first aid. And he gives the handcuff key from the handcuffs that are around Craig's wrist to a sheriff's deputy. And he tells him that he had stabbed the young man accidentally. He gets arrested, he's taken into custody, and his vehicle gets searched pursuant to him being arrested and, and all of this sort of unfolding. And during the vehicle search, the cops recover a hunting knife, a whip that had a metal prong on the end of it, a butcher knife, more handcuffs, uh, canisters of tear gas, and a sword. That's a lot for a first attempted murder, don't you think? 
Uh, yeah, I don't necessarily think that that was his first. Well, that's that, that's what we're going with based on the record so far in a couple of these books. But. Right. Yeah, no, it would be a lot for the first. Um, and, uh, well, actually, I think it would be a lot for no matter how many it was. Yeah, I, I think so, too. Larry, for this incident with Craig Long, gets charged with aggravated battery. And... A judge sets his bond at $10,000. His friends raise his bond, and he gets released um, until August the 23rd. So basically, this incident happens on August the 3rd. He gets out pretty quickly. And he ends up agreeing to plead guilty. On August the 23rd, Larry's lawyers offer Craig Long a check for $2,500 if he agrees not to press charges. So this originally had been a plea hearing, by the way. I don't know if you saw that in all of this. He was going in to plead guilty. But instead, Craig takes the money, and Larry changes his plea on August 23rd to be not guilty. So... Does anybody else have a problem with this? It's it's the weirdest thing. It's the weirdest payoff, but... Well, it's not just weird. Like, that's literally bribing a witness. It is. And it it's victimization all over again. It it is, and it, like it's it's perverting the course of justice, among other things. But he basically pays this guy not to be a witness against them. And on November the thirteenth of nineteen eighty three, he gets fined forty three dollars in court costs. But because the witness is not there, the prosecution can't move forward. He is acquitted of the aggravated battery charge against Craig Long. Now, we don't hear a lot about him until 1981. At that point in time, he had been in a relationship with a 20-year-old married man named John Dobrovolskis. And Dobrovolskis lived with his wife, with two children and three foster children, on North Avenue in Chicago, Illinois. His wife, Sally, was tolerant of the fact that John was out with men and the fact that Larry Eiler would be in their house on weekdays, like he would stay overnight because he paid a portion of the rent. Now, John and Larry are both into different levels of sadomasochism. Sadomasochism is a variety of role-playing practices that can take place during sexual activity, including bondage, discipline, uh, dominance, submission. They're all under kind of the heading of BDSM. The idea being that sadomasochism itself is giving or and receiving pleasure from acts which involve either the the receipt of or infliction of either pain or humiliation. So their thing that they do is that Larry likes to bind John up or tie him up or handcuff him and then beat and lash him and curse at him before the two would engage in penetrative sex. 
Although neither Larry nor John had like an inclination towards monogamy or being their only partners, particularly because John is married, the couple did consider the relationship to be a long-term one or a permanent one. Do you, like, sometimes when we're reading some of this stuff, especially like with this sort of series of cases, I, I find myself wondering, like, why do we know this information? Well, okay, there's quite a bit of books involved here. So let's like throw that out there. Like if you want to go read more about like sort of what's happening. Well, I presume that the underlying um, uh, theme is like this, you know, quote, bad, end quote, behavior, like led to this ultimate outcome. I, you know, <laughs> here's what I think happens. I think we go through a period of time. So these books start coming out in the 80s and 90s where people pull from this and they use different tidbits. And like even I kind of repeat some of the tidbits because it's sensational and it draws attention to the cases. I think that that's 100% correct. I think that's usually just about the only reason. Yeah, like... Like at the end of the day here, we're largely dealing with cases that I think would be forgotten about. Well, and I just want to point out to to my knowledge, uh, and you can correct me if I'm wrong. We were just talking about, um, you know, the perpetrator and somebody he had a consensual relationship with. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is not um, this is not a victim situation that I'm talking about here. This is recounted in a, a couple of different places. So, Gerlin Kalerik has a book called Freed to Kill. That's one of the sources for this. Um, and then there's a book by Lori Car- Carangelo talks about interstate serial killers. That's another source here. We've got... Um, Paul Robinson writing in the law without justice while criminal law doesn't give people what they deserve. Michael Newton's encyclopedia of serial killers has quite a few tidbits on him. Um, Andrew Stoner wrote a lot about Indiana's most heinous murders. So then uh, Larry's in the, the, the volume, the notorious 92 um, Cawthorn in 1993. It's a guy named Nigel Cawthorn who wrote with, um, I think he wrote with Jeff Tibbles. They have a book called Killers and Larry's and that one. You know, any new thing you could bring to this might mean that you would sell some books. And I think that's that's what's happening here is people kind of dig into who's willing to talk. And along the way, uh, according to all of this, several of these people talk to the different authors. And that includes John. Uh, there are quotes in here from him. I don't know how accurate this all is. It's, it's on the internet in a way that like, it's very difficult for me to separate what's real and what isn't. And that's kind of why I tell it the way I tell it. Well, sometimes I feel like we've all gone numb to sort of any sort of shock and all that would be, um, that might've been at some point in time. Right. Um, because we get all these like crazy details and sometimes I just find myself going, why are we reading about this? 
but there's got to be something about it that I'm missing that makes it intriguing. But I think you may have been, you may be completely correct when you say like, it's just something to entice a reader. Yeah. And you know, so Larry, the reason that he's in where he's in is because we're going to get to these I-70 cases here in a second. The reason he's in here for me is he is representative, particularly because of when he's sort of discovered, which we'll talk about. He's representative of how wrong the media and law enforcement were in how they were looking at serial killers. And I think that's been adjusted quite a bit, although I don't think that we, I, I don't think anything would have been done any, any differently with the knowledge that they had at the time. Um, first of all, you know, serial killers are rare. They're identifying them is actually rarer than people realize. And when you have it with a, a particular sections of the population that we've described in detail, which, you know, you know, this is sort of the trifecta of things. One, it's a bunch of unsolved cases that are like strung across jurisdictions. Two, it involves sex workers allegedly. And we've pointed out very carefully who can and cannot be considered a sex worker in here because some of it's just straight up child abuse. But three, it involves the homosexual community. So in the 80s, that's the trifecta of cops don't want none of that. And weirdly, you know, if, if you read about Larry, Larry might have made a good cop at some point. Um, he definitely had a, a, a lot of issues going on. But yeah, we're delving into a relation. We're delving into this relationship here with uh, with John. One of the problems was because of how Larry's childhood had gone down, and whatever was going on in terms of like his, like if we separate him and say there's probably some mental illness related to the constant like separation and reuniting of his family. He has abandonment issues, and he is seeking assurance from John that he's the only man in John's life. Uh, and this is probably coming off of the fact that like he used to bring people home to engage in different activities with him and Robert Little. But the two were known to have frequently argued over Larry being jealous and accusing John of infidelity. John was married. Yeah, I know. I, I don't even, like, I... I, I can I can talk about this. I can't explain it in a way that like people will make sense of it. Well, I think it's, it's pretty pretty fair and safe to say, no matter what the rationalization is uh, on what Larry's rationalization for what he was saying at that point in time would have been. This is a very unhealthy situation. It is, and it's really so. This part of the situation is mentioned for like a really unusual aspect. Michael Cahill and Paul Robinson write about this in Law Without Justice. And I think the reason they're bringing it up is this. Larry and John would fight. John would actually hurt Larry, punch him. And Larry would never retaliate in the physical altercations with John. The couple's arguments were initiated like by their perceptions of each other, but also because Robert Little is still in the picture acting like Larry's dad. And he made no secret that as Larry's father figure, he disapproved of John for Larry. 
And he resented the fact that they had this relationship, maybe out of jealousy, but certainly out of the fact that John is married. So Larry had a part-time job in Greencastle, Indiana, where he would work on Saturdays. And that was as a liquor store clerk. So he would actually travel back and forth between where Dr. Little lived in Terre Haute and John's house. And he was basically living rent-free with Dr. Little, but paying some rent at John's and John's wife's house, which would make things, you know, further angry. Larry gets into some murders. Between 1982 and 1984, he is known to have committed 21 murders and one attempted murder. All of his murders, in terms of what we know, involve restraining the victim and some level of sadomasochism, frequently being stabbing uh, and slit or slashed to death, depending on like which autopsy you're reading. The majority of the wounds were inflicted on victims' chest and abdomen or their torso. Typically, he was giving these people Placidol or alcohol. Are you familiar with Placidol? No, but I would assume it would make someone placid. Yeah, like that's sort of the idea. It's it's a uh, it's a ethylchlorvanol, I think, is the actual name, but it's a pretty heavy duty sedative. So he's either is that giving a prescription. A, God, yes. Okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I I think it would be prescribed for sleeping, and yeah. I. I think that, so at some point, it was widely prescribed, but I think in the 90s, so much later than this, it's classified as a benzodiazepine, Mm -hmm. and I don't know this 100% for sure. Uh, I know it started being used in the, the 50s, and I know it's a Pfizer product, but I think that whoever bought that particular drug in the 90s, I think they discontinue it once it's classified as something that's got to be pretty heavily regulated. So he's these these people who are being restrained and murdered are out of it. According to the different records you can read on uh, Larry, the numbers of what's happening change over time. Now, if you go back and read in the 80s, he gets charged with one murder out of a suspected 18. Several of these 18 are victims who were disemboweled after death or basically gutted to some degree. And he is thought to have dismembered the bodies of four of his victims. I bring that up because it's kind of a big deal to me when someone has lain some victims out and they've disemboweled some and they've dismembered others, he's engaging in different types of body disposal methods. And that's kind of a big deal for what we're looking at with the I-70 Strangler. His victims were typically being discarded in fields close to major interstate highways. And they would frequently be found with their pants and their underwear around their knees or their ankles and they would be missing their shirts and they usually did not have their wallets or any valuables on them or identifying uh, 
articles on them when they were found at the crime scene. All right, so going by like what we know about him, on October 12th of 1982, Larry lures a guy named Craig Townsend into a vehicle in Lake County, Indiana. And although he drugs this guy and beats the life out of Craig and then abandons him naked and essentially in a coma in a rural field that does lead to Townsend suffering from pretty severe exposure to the elements because it's, you know, October in Indiana. Uh, Craig survives. 11 days later, on October the 23rd, Larry abducts a young man who's about 19 years old named Stephen Crockett. Now, Stephen Crockett pops up in a cornfield 12 hours after he vanishes and is murdered in Illinois, in in Kankakee County. An autopsy revealed that Stephen Crockett had been beaten and then stabbed to death, suffering uh, 32 knife wounds, most of which were to his body, but that included four wounds to his head. A week later, on October the 30th, a 26-year-old man named Edgar Underkofler disappears from Rancho, Illinois. His body isn't found until the following March in a field that's close to Danville, Illinois. So Rancho, Illinois is in Champaign County. Danville, Illinois is actually in Vermilion County. Sometime during the following month, Larry grabbed a 25-year-old barman named John Johnson. His body ends up being found in Lowell, Indiana. Uh, Now, the Chicago Tribune publishes a series of articles where they list out the 24 victims that police are going to link to Larry Eiler uh, in August of 1984. If you guys want to check that out, it's pretty easy to find. On November 20th, Larry grabs a 19-year-old hitchhiker named William Lewis, who is in Knox County, Indiana. He stabs him to death, and for some reason, he buries him in a field out in uh, Jasper County. Um, I just want to clarify that we don't know for certain that the initial encounter between um, Larry and these victims that we're talking about, like, they, they could have started, like, amicably, right? Yeah, this could just be him having a sex partner. Correct. Okay, I just wanted to uh, be to kind of say that because I know I've seen sources that like indicate things like they he took them, which I mean that's true, but like they may have gone willingly initially. I mean I don't think they willingly went off to their death, right? Yeah. But um, as far as like uh, especially like a hitchhiker, right? If he's offering a ride and that kind of thing, so we don't know what his initial demeanor. Uh, we don't know that his initial demeanor was anything alarming right yeah i think that this is probably a good time to make that point like i'm going off of like all the summaries and these sensational articles and books and well and i've seen where it indicates he's taking these people which is not wrong it's just i always separate out a situation where you've got somebody saying hey you need a ride buddy you know versus like you know putting your hand over their mouth with you know the placidol stuff down their throat and you know that's like kidnapping right right and right. In this this kind of situation um we're talking about youngish 
adult, youngish adult male, right? And so, you know, just going along with what I always say, um, they are the most invulnerable population with regard to, you know, actually being kidnapped. Um, And so while they may end up somewhere that they don't want to be and they want to get out of that, and at that point they can't, um, you know, a lot of these, uh, a lot of these incidents are happening and they start off in a, a way that like you run into anybody else. Yeah. Yeah. These are, um, that's one of the things that makes, in my opinion, Larry Eiler so, uh, sort of creepy. He is very creepy. I agree. Um, That he's like sort of picking these guys up and this is what's happening here. But this is not that unfamiliar to things that we've seen of other serial killers before and after this. It's just, this spree that's happening here, because everything I just described to you is happening between October and December of 1982, all at one time. And we're not even done yet. No, so and it's like quite a few victims, right? Yeah so, yeah. so we have Craig Townsend and then we have Stephen Crockett and then we have um, Edgar Undercofler. We Then we're already up to John Johnson and now we have William Lewis. And it doesn't stop there. On December 19th, a 23-year-old named Stephen Megan was abducted in Terre Haute, Indiana. And again, that's how it says it online because it's probably more of a deceptive thing yeah. than it is a actual like Abduction. snatch and grab. Right. So keep that in mind with all of these cases. I know I we're do, only- don't you think that that kind of like skews it though? I mean, I think it's important just to realize that while it says that – we don't have any evidence to indicate that that's what was really happening. Yeah. Like ultimately they call it that because whatever he did to get them moving was not gonna, it wasn't jiving with the results, which is their murder. Right. And I agree to the extent that like, you know, nobody went willingly along to their murder. Yeah. So December 19th, Stephen Agan, somehow he and Larry, leave together and Steven's body ends up being found close to Indiana state road 63 on December the 28th. They find an outbuilding. So where he's found is kind of like a little patch of trees. They found an outbuilding nearby, which is uh, there's an abandoned farm close to the crime scene and essentially one of the outbuildings it reveals that there are several traces of human flesh along the walls where plaster in this outbuilding had been damaged. And investigators speculated that Agen had been there, had been suspended against the walls of this outbuilding, and the murderer had been inflicting the injuries to his body. The mutilation to Agen's abdomen, chest, and throat was described as extensive, And the coroner, John Pless, he said that he thought there was tremendous rage that that Stephen's killer had exhibited upon Stephen. So initially, he wrote up that he thought there might be more than one perpetrator in this particular murder. And uh, those words echo all the way to now. Yes. And it, it brings on a lot of 
speculative banter, which, I mean, I can't say anything about that because I'm, you know, we have speculative banter all the time. But I, you know, I like to take this opportunity to say it is highly unlikely that there's going to be an accomplice situation in these types of murders. Yeah. Yeah. I I would tend to agree that that that's going to be accurate. And I feel like I'm not saying it's impossible. I'm just saying like sometimes when I hear stuff, um, this is, this case is interesting as it correlates with the other stuff we're talking about, but I don't know what inspired or what, I don't know why the doctor said, you know, there's a likelihood of there being more than one perpetrator, except perhaps the amount of damage that was done. Maybe. Um, there may have been some other indication. I don't know. I haven't actually seen it. Have you? No, I haven't seen photos in this case. I could give you a little bit better idea. Or but- even like beyond like what the actual statement was on the autopsy report. I mean, it may just say there's a likelihood that there was more than one perpetrator without any sort of justification, right? I, I don't know for certain. The, the description here, talking about the doctor saying that, it's not a quote, right? The tremendous rage is a quote. Yeah, let's see. The, I don't think I have a direct quote. Uh, what I have comes out of this book by uh, – it's about – Larry's case by Gerald Galeric and Wayne Clatt. They're kind of referencing uh, notes from the autopsies and then from subsequent. Uh, it's an amalgamation that they're using here, so it's not a quote. Um, they're just saying that Pless would note striking similarities in how horrible these injuries are and another murder. So that's actually a different thing. Um, I don't know if we want to discuss that here. People have already heard it, but what happens that like Pless is involved in that's odd is he's looking at the murder of John Roach. All right. This is what it says in the shortest form from uh, the book I just referenced. Immediately after concluding Stephen's autopsy, Dr. John Pless conducted the autopsy on a 21-year-old named John Roach. So John Roach is the murder where we were talking about in the last episode. Um, He was last seen planning to spend Christmas with his girlfriend. He was upset about having money. So he was found stabbed in a field with 20 to 25 wounds in his abdomen, his upper chest, and his throat. Now he had been a street hustler, so keep that in mind. But his case, just in terms of timing, would have been right around this time. Do you follow me? December 19th, Stephen Hagen goes missing from Terre Haute. Ever how he gets there, we don't know. His body's found December 28th. John Roach goes missing December 20th. Yeah. The next day. And then there's another student, uh, there's a, a Yale University student who disappears on the 30th. Right. right. That's David Block. 
He, he goes missing from Highland Park. That's up in Illinois. And he says he was going to visit a friend. His body ends up being found in May of 84. So it's going to be a while before we right. see Right. And uh, I guess, I, I'm sorry, I lost track of where we were going with that. Okay, here's what I was going to say. I, I know what you, I, I know where you lost track because I, I, I did that. I'm sorry. Pless noted that there were striking similarities between John Roach's murder and Stephen Hagen's murder. Multiple stab wounds to the victim's abdomen, upper chest, and throat. And he only notes that because there's an overt rage exhibited by the perpetrator. On December the 30th, we have a 22-year-old Yale University graduate named David Block. He disappears from Highland Park. So this is right between Christmas and New Year's. He told his family he was going to see a friend in Highwood, which is like a, it's a, on the North, uh, North Shore of Chicago in Lake County. His body, though, it gets found in a field south of Illinois Route 173, May 7, 1984, so a time like like way, way later. And we haven't got to this yet, but the confession around the Stephen Agan case is crazy. And that's where Pless comes back in. So Dr. John Pless, who's the coroner performing these autopsies, who's talking about the rage he's seeing here, that's going to come up again because you know, like, we're going to get to a point here where this guy is caught and he makes some confessions that are crazy. And you've already alluded to one of them. But I think with that confession, we get a window into what was happening. So on January 24th, 1983, we have a 16-year-old named Irvin Gibson who disappears up in Lake County, Illinois. His body is discovered April 15th, and the body is discovered atop the body of a dog, and both of them have been stabbed to death. Between March and April of 1983, Larry is believed to have killed a minimum of five victims between the ages of 17 and 29. Then we come back to what's making all this kind of be full circle. On May 9th, the body of 21-year-old Daniel Scott McNeeby, who we already talked about, he pops up in a field close to Indiana State Road 39, but in Hendricks County. The wounds inflicted to Daniel, they look like the wounds on some of these other victims. So that's where this idea comes that this is probably the work of the same guy. He had suffered 11 knife wounds to his neck, five to his back, 11 to his abdomen. One of the wounds in his abdomen caused sections of his small intestine to protrude through his abdomen. There were also different types of marks on McNeeby's wrists, ankles, and body that indicated he had been heavily bound before he was murdered. His jeans were pulled down to his ankles. But up until this point, none of these bodies show any signs of having been subjected to a sexual assault. Nine days after what happens with McNeeby, Larry is alleged to have murdered a 25-year-old guy named Richard Bruce in Effingham, Illinois. And here he throws this body off of a bridge into a creek and it lays there from May until December the 5th. Around this time, mid-1983, 
a lot of people in the gay community start to wonder what's happening. Now, we've already read some of those articles. They were going one direction with relating all of this sort of to the I-70 Strangler. And I honestly think this is when the I-70 Strangler gets the name the I-70 Strangler. Although I think they get a lot of it wrong. I think I was going to say, like, what about this Indicate the Strangler? Well, here's what it is. And this is how we'll end this episode. I think... When the FBI pops up with that article that we were reading last episode, and they're trying to develop these two different perpetrators, first of all, I think the FBI is cheating. I think the FBI had a very specific person in mind with one of those profiles and nobody in mind with the other profile. I think they were pretty close to essentially potentially solving uh, one of those cases. And specifically, I think it's DeVoy Baker. I think they had what they needed for DeVoy Baker, but maybe didn't know exactly how it had gone down. But I think they decided they need to differentiate from the stranglings and the stabbings. So they start to call this one series of murders the work of the I-70 Strangler. How it gets the I-70 nickname is beyond me. I think they're they're kind of picking from what we had we half ass analyzed earlier on in the series. They're picking a couple of these rural locations. They're saying those are close enough to I seventy, so they attach a geog- no, uh, geography to it. But then they they call it strangling to differ to differentiate between the stranglings and these stabbings. Right, and um, I think that. Uh, it goes along with, I think the I-70 part comes in after, well, I feel like there was a specific suspect attached to the idea of uh, it, that suspect would have had to travel I-70 to have committed the murders that are later on attributed to him. That and makes sense to me. Yeah. And and that's the only thing I've been able to come up with because, and and I have to say, this, like, not just this, but, like, all of the different things we're, we've, we're talking about and we're going to talk about and we've already covered, this is some of the most confusing, mangled mess of cases. Yeah, just trying to unpack it. You know, that's one of the problems I ran into here. Trying to unpack it from court records perspective was one thing. But even the media on this, like... Depending on what you read, what the slant of the publishing body at the time was, and how they were reporting on the different cases, you know, it, like you could literally read three articles and not know if there were five victims, nine victims, or 27 victims. And that would just be like sort of like the starting point, just tracking all of these cases to see what was investigated when it's very difficult to unpack, which is why I've sort of chosen to tell it this way because I, I picked up with the I-70 Strangler and it's strange to me because I haven't actually been able to differentiate how many actual victims there are. I can only tell you that they attribute 12 victims to the I-70 Strangler and then X number of victims to this particular case with Larry Eiler, but that doesn't account for all these other 
70s murders that had been occurring. Because when you pick this up and read a newspaper article in, say, 1982 or 1983, they're talking about 25 other murders that are real similar to this that have happened over the preceding 10 years. And to me, that just makes it... It, it opens it up so much further to be possibly, you know, not just like the one killer, right? Yeah. And I've sort of derailed this at this point to a, a little bit. I apologize for doing that to you because I know that you've done like some pretty specific research on this. But so this is going to be essentially the first of uh, two parts on this section of the case. And then we have at least three more parts. Thank you so much for joining us today. We'll see you next time. This is True Crime XS. All right, so I'm going to tell you guys uh, a few things about some of the folks who are helping sponsor our show. Now, Labrati Creations sponsors our show, and you can always use the, the Crime XS code there. Um, you can also just message them uh, at uh, Labrati Creations, and they will generally do something for the people who come from True Crime XS. They were our very first sponsor. They've done a lot for the show. And that code is CRIMEXS at LabratiCreations.com. The first new advertisers that we have, and I've, I've selected all of these guys. I've selected all of these advertisers. So the very first one is Cure. Now, I'm going to tell you guys about this, uh, about Cure as being one of our sponsors. If you're an athlete, you know that proper hydration is key to peak performance, but plain water can be boring and sports drinks can be filled with artificial ingredients and added sugars. That's why we love Cure. It's a clean and effective way to stay hydrated and perform at your best. I use it late in the day when I switch out of caffeine mode, specifically when I hit the pool or I go play tennis with my wife. I use Cure to help me stay hydrated it helps me recover after a long day. Now, you guys may not know this, but I build things. And right now, I've been building several structures on our property out here. Among those is a new podcast studio space for myself. I do a lot of that work at night and into the wee hours. And I always have some cure with me to go into my aluminum water bottle. Hydration is not just about filling up my aluminum bottle with water. Cure Hydration is an oral rehydration solution that contains the perfect balance of electrolytes and glucose to help your body absorb water and rehydrate quickly. Whether I'm building things or putting the podcast together or chasing these dogs that you sometimes hear in my studio up and down the trails to get them worn out, Cure Hydration is the way that I choose to go. Cure Hydration is an oral rehydration solution or an ORS that contains the perfect balance of electrolytes and glucose to help your body absorb water and to rehydrate quickly. The formula is made with all natural ingredients like coconut water powder and pink Himalayan salt. It's free from artificial flavors, from sweeteners and preservatives. 
Pure Hydration is vegan, gluten-free, and non-GMO, making it a great option for anyone with dietary restrictions or preferences. The packets are convenient and easy to use. You just mix them with your water and you drink. They're perfect for on the go. They're perfect for travel. And anytime you need a quick and effective hydration boost, ready to combat dehydration, then you try Cure today and feel the difference for yourself. You can use code TRUECRIMEXS for 20% off your order. That's T-R-U-E-C-R-I-M-E-X-S. I have a link that I'm putting in the most recent episode show notes, and True Crime Access will get you 20% off. Our second sponsor for the show today is Laird. Now, Laird has a list of things that they want me to tell you about. They have better ingredients with amazing taste and functional benefits. They have a superfood creamer crafted from the highest quality all-natural real food ingredients. All Laird products are sustainably sourced and thoroughly tested to ensure that you're incorporating the cleanest, finest fuel into your routine. They have all-natural whole food ingredients, and they contain naturally occurring MCTs made from coconut oil. There's no artificial flavors, there's no colors or additives, and there's no sugar from highly refined corn syrup. They want me to talk about my love of coffee, but the truth is, I don't do much with coffee. But let me tell you someone who does. My wife has to have a cup of coffee every day. Now, I've fallen off recently, but one of the big things that I've done since the beginning of our relationship is she used to go and get a Starbucks every morning. I have substituted that out by always trying to make her coffee. It's not going to be every single day of time from when I met her, but for the most part, almost every day, I make her coffee. I put her creamers together, and I make sure that she has a good way to start her day. So with Laird, he started experimenting with his morning ritual almost two decades ago. He found that when he started adding fats to his morning cup, like coconut oil, he had amazing energy throughout the rest of his day. He gradually perfected this recipe for an epic cup of fuel, and he began sharing it with his friends in the surf community. I'm an ocean guy, so... I saw this item and I was like, okay, we're going to try this one out. Are you ready to feel more energized, more focused, and supported? Go to LairdSuperfood.com and add nourishing plant-based foods to fuel you from sunrise to sunset. And you can use our promo code at checkout to save 15% off your purchase today. Our offer code for this for Laird is going to be X. Yes. Pretty much everywhere except for Labrador Creations. If you use True Crime XS, that will get you, uh, at Laird, it'll get you 15% off. At some of the other places, it'll get you 20% off. Uh, I'm going to tell you about two more uh, sponsors today. So the first one is, uh, the third one is Liquid IV. So let's talk about the real reasons that you need to hydrate. Late night TV binging, back-to-back Zoom meetings, going on a walk with your friends. Everyday hydration is not just for high-energy athletic endeavors. Liquid IV is the number one powdered hydration brand in America. It's now available in sugar-free. This is years in the making. But Hydration Multiplier Sugar-Free uses a proprietary zero-sugar hydration solution with no artificial sweeteners. It's got three times the electrolytes of the leading sports drink, but it's also got eight vitamins and nutrients for everyday wellness. 
Liquid IV hydrates two times faster than water alone. Keep your daily routine exciting with three new flavors. They've got white peach, green grape, and lemon lime. I love all of these flavors, but I think that my favorite is probably the green grape. Uh, White peach I use as a secondary flavor, and lemon lime I leave here for my my kids and my wife. Uh, Liquid IV believes that equitable access to clean and abundant water is the foundation of a healthier world. They also partner with leading organizations to fund and foster innovative solutions that help communities protect both their water and their futures. To date, Liquid IV has donated over 39 million servings in 50 plus countries around the world. You can get 20% off when you grab your Liquid IV Hydration Multiplier sugar-free or any other variant at liquidiv.com and use code TrueCrimeXS at checkout. That's 20% off anything you order when you shop Better Hydration today using promo code TrueCrimeXS at liquidiv.com. And the last sponsor I want to tell you about is Zencaster. We are part of Zencaster's creative network. We've been using Zencaster since about midway into our first season. Uh, Meg and I experimented with a lot of different ways to put the podcast together. And the truth is Zencaster was an, an integral ingredient to us being able to bring you this show. It's so easy. It's now super easy. You can record a podcast with Zencaster. You can log in using your browser and you start recording a high quality podcast right away. You can record studio quality sound and up to 4K video with your guests. You get to feel a sense of Zen knowing that Zencaster's multi-layered backups ensure you will always have your recordings in the highest quality, even if the connection is unstable. You sound your best. I mean, if you've ever worried about what you sound like, Zencaster's post-production process makes you sound buttery smooth. It automatically removes those ums and ahs in your recordings. It removes those awkward pauses and conversation, too. You can set the right podcast loudness and levels while reducing background noise with a click of a button. That's how you don't hear my dogs every uh, second of every episode. Zencaster is all in one. If you've thought about podcasting before and realized that you need a lot of different tools and services, those days are now over. With Zencaster's all-in-one podcasting platform, you can create your podcast all in one place, and you can distribute to Spotify, Apple, and other major destinations. Just go to Zencaster.com slash pricing and use my code TrueCrimeXS, and you're going to get 30% off your first month of any Zencaster paid plan. You can also check out the other plans they have available. I want you to have the same easy experiences that I do for all my podcasting and content needs. So Zencaster.com slash pricing. The offer code is TrueCrimeXS, and it's time for you to share your story today. Uh, we are also adding New Era as a uh, sponsor for the show. New Era Cap is a headwear and apparel brand founded in 1920 in Buffalo, New York. Now, uh, I actually have some experience with New Era Caps. My dad and I have been through multiple iterations of baseball caps through the years. We collect different styles, different eras, and now my teenager has started his own cap collection and has several New Eras as the centerpieces. Our favorite teams may not be the same, but our outfits are all topped with the same new era ball caps. 
Uh, we love the quality and the ability to wear what the players are wearing. Not to mention New Era is the leading headwear manufacturer with quality licensed products. You can support your favorite college or pro team in style from the official headwear provider for the MLB, NFL, and NBA. You can get a stylish accessory for your everyday ensemble and support True Crime Excess. Just shop the official headwear and get 15% off when you go to neweracap.com. That's N-E-W-E-R-A-C-A-P.com slash True Crime Excess. You can also use the code True Crime Excess at checkout. That's it. That's all you have to do. And that's 15% off your order using the promo code True Crime Excess.